Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside of the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Ben Rosman. He is CEO and co-founder of PSI Labs out of Ann Arbor, Michigan. We're going to talk to him today a little bit about the laboratory side, the testing side of cannabis of the market, both sort of the science side I'm curious about in terms of like, what are we testing? How do we test it? You know, how do we test it at scale? How do we really kind of know what we're producing, what we're processing, what we're actually putting into the hands of people and, and into the bodies of people? And then also talk a little bit about how this is shaped up from a regulatory, from a structural point of view, how labs are playing a role in the whole development of the cannabis industry and how that's playing out. I think there's been a lot of, you know, in a growth industry, there's a lot of complexities. There's a lot of things that kind of have to get worked out, you know, everything from the regulatory side to actually enforcement and making these things work. And so I'm curious to see Ben's, you know, how he's seen things play out, how their company is participating in the cannabis market and the cannabis industry. So I'm excited to have the conversation with that. Ben, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Bruce. Really appreciate yeah. it. Let's start with background. I guess, how did you get into cannabis? Tell us about forming a PSI. What was your background before that? Give us a little of the backstory and then we can kind of dig into the details. Sure. So I was practicing law, criminal defense with a specialty in medical marijuana law. Mm-hmm. So in 2008, 
Michigan passed the MMMA, the Medical Marijuana Act. And uh, in Michigan, it was sort of the Wild West of cannabis, where depending on how many plants you grew, if you grew one too many, depending on where you lived, it could be the difference between a felony or being within the bounds of the law or, you know, possibly having CPS show up at school and take your kids away. And we were seeing that kind of thing play out. So it was a really fascinating time to practice law and criminal defense and help people out. And just really interesting to see how these things played out within the state of Michigan, where, you know, we'd see some jurisdictions like where we ultimately set up our lab in Ann Arbor, which has always been had some of the most lenient laws and a stance towards cannabis going back to the early 70s. So in Ann Arbor, for example, you would have uh, the city of Ann Arbor gave out licenses for dispensaries before there was any sort of regulatory framework to do so under the MMMA. And then in other cities, people would set up a dispensary and get raided and again, felonies and the whole shebang. So I was doing that sort of thing, got a feel for the industry, people who are operating in it and saw there was a need for more robust testing. There was one lab at the time. They weren't serving everyone's needs. I had a really close friend going back to middle school who was finishing up a, uh, a postdoc at IU in Indiana, <clears throat> and uh, we we're both patients. I have epilepsy, is Crohn's disease, and uh, so we go to these dispensaries and come back, and suddenly, you know, the products have numbers on them with some sort of somewhat discernible testing data that didn't really make sense to me, but didn't make (laughs) sense to him either. And so we just started talking about it a little bit. Is this something we could do? And, uh, and it just seemed like a great time to do it. So we ended up opening up a lab in May, 2015. I mean, I guess when we're testing these products and we're testing the, what are we testing? What are we testing for? How are we testing? Give give us a little insight on what you actually do as a lab and, and kind of the role you serve I guess, what's your posture relative to the market or relative to the industry? Sure. So when we first opened up, we were in the gray area of the law right there. We were operating under the MMMA, where the way we saw it, we were allowed to possess cannabis as patients and caregivers for a small amount of time for the purposes of testing before we destroyed it. That was how we operated until the MMFLA came along, which was our medical law. And then we got a license under medical and under, you know, this new regulatory framework, anything that's sold at a dispensary, and this is true in adult use as well, the recreational law, anything that's sold at a dispensary has to be tested at a lab like ours. And so a flower product or a concentrate product would have to be tested for something like potency, water activity, heavy metals, residual solvents for concentrates or pesticides microbiological contamination. You know, if you're talking about something like an edible, you want to test it for homogeneity. Mm -hmm. If you test 10 separate doses or chocolate bars, are they going to be within 15% of each other relative? Mm -hmm. Or is one going to be 100 milligrams and Uh, another is going to be 250? I'm curious on the edible side, like, is this I've got 10 different chocolate bars and I'm testing between the chocolate bars or am I taking a chocolate bar and cutting into 10 pieces and I'm checking to make sure each piece of the chocolate bar is consistent or both? We do both, but for homogeneity specifically, we have to do 10 separate doses. 
So whatever they would consider a dose. So for something like a chocolate bar, they might say one chocolate bar equals three doses. Uh You know, you split it up into three, but we need to take 10 doses for the homogeneity test. But when we go out there and we do our sampling, it's it's different from state to state. Some states will allow the producer to bring the sample to the lab, which doesn't make a lot of sense to us. In Michigan, we send out field sampling technicians to the grows or to the processors. They take a representative sample, which is a percent weight of the batch, and then bring that back to the lab. And so we already have a random sample that's representative of the entire batch and then take a subsample of that to do all of these different tests. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. The whole, um, you bring me what you want to have tested certainly raises questions. <laughs> you know, exactly. you're like the person who's supposed to be, is being tested is deciding what gets tested has potentially, it's problematic at some level. And what is, in terms of representative, I mean, it, you know, if you've got if you've got a batch of a thousand candy bars, like what's the how much needs to go off to testing for the for the process to feel like you are in fact validating that the entire batch is you know statistically accurate? Yeah. So the state has gone back and forth on that. The first time they published this testing guide, they sort of laid out a table saying if the total batch size was between say 500 to 1500 total units you would take 25 samples, let's say. And so they created some nice, easy metrics for us to go off. Then they got rid of that and basically just said, take half a weight percent across the board, no matter what the uh, matrix was and what you were testing, if it was flower concentrate edibles. And that meant we had to sample a lot more than we needed. And no one was happy with that. So Sorry, that was a half a percent by weight of whatever the batch size is. Correct. Got it. So we ended up with way more than we needed for infused products like, you know, edibles. It's fine for flowers. But now in this most recent iteration, we're sort of allowed to establish our own sampling protocols for infused products again. And so it's not half a weight percent and we're You know, we do it based on what we need plus a field duplicate in case we need to do any retests. Okay, interesting. So you take enough to be able to run the test twice once you do then and then once you keep in case you need to do a retest if there's something inconclusive or there's there's a reason to retest it, you have material on hand. Exactly. Yeah, interesting. And I mean, I guess trying to think of how to ask this. Who do you serve? (laughs) I guess, who's kind of your customer? (laughs) That's such a great question. And we're put in this really difficult position because our client is the grower or the processor, right? And they're paying us to do these tests, but the results of the test sometimes will force them to lose hundreds of thousands of dollars. And we have to give this data to the state And the state will audit the data and make sure that it looks accurate, that sort of thing. And they're ultimately the arbiter of whether or not the data is good between the labs. And I think they're doing their best job on the data scientist point of view, and they could use more help there. But it's a really tough position when your client is paying you to provide them sometimes with results that they really don't want. And we can get you know, we're one of the more unpleasant parts of the job is having to have these conversations with clients where they don't want the results or they don't agree with them or worst case scenario, 
former clients who yeah. have tried to put pressure on to change results or uh-huh. you know implicit or even explicit bribery mm-hmm. uh, so maintaining integrity as a safety compliance facility for some people could be really, really hard. And I think it's a problem across the country because you do see labs that are inflating potency and there's articles that are written about it in every single news outlet that I've seen. You see labs that are giving really easy passes where things Mm -hmm. have visible mold on them are passing, you know, at other labs. And right now we're in the process of sort of randomly buying things off dispensary shelves that are tested at labs using this one method that we know is not scientifically valid that other states have outright banned. But it gives an easy pass for total yeast and mold, even though on another state-approved method, the one that we use, uh, it'll be astronomical fail. And so this is another problem. It's been written up in the Boston Globe, for example, where labs are clashing, saying, you should not be using this method. And what is a grower supposed to do when they say, you know, the state has allowed a lab to use this method and the lab is going to pass me every single time. Of course, Mm -hmm. I'm going to go there. It incentivizes lab shopping, but also bad science. And it puts moldy product on the shelves. So, well, it's interesting because it, I mean, I mean, from my point of view, you're stuck between three things. I mean, there's your kind of client, the person that's paying you, like the the grower or the processor, right? You've got the state, which you know you're kind of using their approved kind of testing procedures. You're kind of compliance, like you're you're helping enforce state compliance. But then you've got kind of consumer health and welfare, where it's like the situation you're talking about, it's like, well, I'm passing the state bar because I'm using what they've said is a, a reasonable way to test. I'm passing the my client's bar and that I'm I'm giving them a lab result which they need to go to market. But in the end, I'm failing the general public, you know, the consumer, because in the end, uh, you know, the product is going onto the shelf that has risks associated with it. So it's a real kind of conundrum <laughs> I see labs in in this process. It's a huge conundrum. And for us, we are... We're failing more flour than other labs that are using this method. Yeah. It's qPCR method. And so yeah. we're losing a lot of clients that grow, which is not yeah. a surprise because they're moving to labs that use qPCR. I started this coalition back in 2018 of all of the labs that were around at the time. It's called MISL, Michigan Coalition of Independent Cannabis mm-hmm. Testing Labs. It's a very wordy. That's why we just <laughs> go by MISL. Yeah. But so right now, there's 11 labs in it. Seven of the labs are against this qPCR method or huh. use it. And so they're very much for it. And the state says it's a business decision. But the state puts us in this position where they have validated both methods, which are diametrically opposed because we can pick something up off the shelves that is 100 to 300 times over the action limit with visible mold that fails in our lab, but passed at one of these other labs. And it's the patients or just general consumers who are suffering. And we definitely didn't get into this business to put you know garbage on the shelves. Yeah, well, and, you've, and and I'll say you even got a fourth party, which is your your investors. <laughs> like you have to run a profitable business too, so it's really a dynamic. And I guess what I mean, so I, so I get that you know there's kind of the technical side of it, right? Which is how do I you know procure the sample? How do I process the sample? How do I you know what are the 
my father was director of clinical chemistry at the University of Minnesota. So, like, you know, the whole standardized testing, like how do I know from, from test to test to test that my results are comparable, right? That I've, I've standardizing my testing procedures enough that I know I'm not going to have procedural variances and so that I can reliably test these between batches, between labs, you know, different times, different days. And then there's the kind of how do I report this back to, you know, to the parties involved in such a way that it's going to be meaningful and useful and they can actually take actionable results for it. And then there's the sort of business side of like, how do you create a profitable business around that? I guess from your point of view, what has been the harder part or the more challenging part of the independent laboratory testing business side? Is it the science side? Is it the business side? Is it both? No, the science side is great. I mean, we yeah. have, you know, my partner has a PhD's been one of the smartest people I've known since we were 12 years old or something when I met him. And we've got three PhDs, four folks with masters of science working in the lab. We've always been very academically minded and taken that sort of approach in the lab, sometimes to our detriment, again, because we would sacrifice some short-term business in the interest of sort of raising the overall bar of uh, the cannabis testing industry in Michigan, at the very least, if not nationwide. So the challenge then is just things that are going on in the industry. Part of it is the cycle of unrealistic expectations. Uh, For example, just an average consumer based on this history of testing and either bad practices in the testing industry or incompetence or negligence thinks that an average flower is going to test at 20% potency. And that's because dispensaries, that's like the bare minimum that they're going to buy a flower at. And so the growers are putting pressure on labs to boost the potency. And so that's been happening and that's more and more prevalent. And so you see potency go up and that's not necessarily because potency is going up. It's because labs are inflating data. There was a really great study done by the chief data scientist at Leafly showing that exact sort of data inflation in the state of Washington. And um, we're working with with Leafly on that same sort of thing, where they vet all of your data for over a year to see if you're a lab basically that inflates data or not. But that's just one of those problems that's that's in the industry. So that's not an issue for us as far as uh, on that side of it. Yeah. And uh, on the business side, I mean, I guess tell me, like as you look at kind of you know running a lab, what makes a lab successful? How you kind of facilitate the industry? And I'm particularly curious on. I mean, you're uh, based in, in Michigan, but what I think you mentioned multi-state operations. Like, there's got to be complexity, not non-trivial complexity that comes up when you're talking about running a multi-state laboratory operation. Just because you're now dealing with it's like doing work in different countries, right? Like, I have a whole different regulatory structure. I've got you know different sort of politics and process and oversight. And I mean, tell us a little bit about that complexity of the business side when you're dealing with multi-state. Sure. So to be clear, we're not in MSO yet. Okay. That's something we're working towards, and I, in the next thinking six months we expect to be. So I might have a better answer for you then. I can say just my experience in the state of Michigan, it is like cannabis law and you know the licensing aspects of it, the administrative law is extremely nuanced just within the state of Michigan. And it is so different from state to state that, uh, that you're right. And that's why working with good people and experienced people in 
each state is crucial. And you can't just hand over kind of a manual and say, this is how you run our lab and go to it. You need to have the right operators in place and folks that have been working in that state and have good business connections and you know, right, political connections as well. Yeah, it's part of business, right, is knowing how the industry works, you know, how it's, uh, you know, having the right connections, relationships. What have you found as you've kind of navigated the the sort of legal, regulatory, licensing side of it? What have been some of the skills? I'm assuming that your background on the legal side has helped. <laughs> I'm curious how. I'm curious what you've been able to apply, like what's been really kind of key for you to be successful? And then maybe what are some things that you've had to kind of learn as you've, you know, kind of really focused on the laboratory business side of things? Sure. I think more than anything, just the advocacy side has really helped because before we even opened our lab, I started writing memos to different people who I knew were involved in writing drafts for what would end up being the MMFLA and uh, these different acts for medical and then recreational, different city ordinances and saying, this testing rule doesn't make sense and here's why and here's our proposed change and uh, this would be the ultimate impact not only on the testing industry but on these industry stakeholders and on the uh, consumers, patients and caregivers. And so did a lot of lobbying, I guess you could say, on behalf of Scilabs and then on behalf of the testing industry. And then ultimately, like I said, I created this testing lab coalition so we could lobby with a unified voice. But all of that work sort of got me um, you know, more, more comfortable speaking with folks who were doing the work on behalf of the state government. So for us, it's MRA. Those those are the people who are running the show in Lansing mm-hmm. and uh, interact a lot with them and have a really good working relationship with them. But, you know, we feel very comfortable advising them or, you know, making suggestions for different changes or promulgating new rules altogether. And that's something we've been doing since 2014 now. Yeah. On the business side, I'm curious, as things have grown, as you've kind of built out the capabilities, what have been kind of the bottlenecks for you as, you know, technical talent, equipment, materials, space? I mean, where I find every every business has kind of choke points, you know, in terms of things that become challenging as they grow and as they kind of develop. Where have been some of the things that you've had to kind of figure out how to overcome some challenges? So space was a big one. And that sort of happened a couple different times. We're right now, we're in our third location. Not that we mm-hmm. have three, but we've moved two times and we just grew out of each place that we're in. And now we're growing out of this spot. And so we're going to move to a significantly larger location where we started in a 3000 square foot facility. Now we're in one that's 6,300 square feet and we're moving to uh, one that's just about 30,000 square feet. And what's driving the space need? Is this the volume? Is this the type of testing? Where have the space needs come from? Yeah, it's the volume and it's our staff size. We have 35 people now. In the next uh, three, four months, I'll be hiring like at least seven to 10 more employees. Mm-hmm. And we don't have room for anyone. <laughs> yeah. So we have, uh, we have different shifts. You know, we have a morning and an afternoon shift. And we had to do that for COVID anyways. Yeah. But we just don't have anywhere to put folks. So that was one of the bottlenecks for sure. Another one is instrumentation. We have redundancies on each one of our instruments, but we want to get a third instrument and then ultimately a fourth instrument, which is what we're going to do when we move to our new space. 
but we don't have anywhere to put them in our in yeah. our space right now. Yeah. I can imagine the business is fairly capital intensive. How like what's been your experience in terms of either equity or debt financing and like finding the capital to invest in these you know, hire people and invest in the equipment and do the space build outs. What's give me some insight on that side. Sure. So again, we started in 2015 before testing was mandatory mm-hmm. and we were testing for things like potency. We started really pushing the market towards terpenes and then residual solvents as a, you know, safety matter, but none of it was mandatory. And dispensaries required caregivers to do the test before they would buy it, but really just potency. And it was more for marketing on the dispensary side, but none of it was regulated by the state. So we didn't need as many instruments as we would need now and certainly didn't need the most expensive instrumentation. So we were able to start a lab, you know, in that around 3,000 square foot blueprint for $200,000 from a family and friend financing. And we've been self-financed ever since then and yeah. going really strong. Yeah. And I, I imagine that that has served you well in the last 12 months <laughs> as kind of the, the valuations and you know the, the markets, the debt and equity markets have been somewhat tumultuous for cannabis companies. Yeah, it's, it's been great. We got in at the right time and we've just sort of taken on more instrumentation as we've needed it and done it very methodically, piecemeal, and it's it served as well. I'm curious, and as this industry matures and you compare yourselves to other industries, I mean, you know, pharmaceuticals have been doing this kind of laboratory testing on consumer ingestible products, you know, for decades. I mean, are there things you're learning or comparing, borrowing, or is just such a different industry at such a different scale right now that this stuff is just apples and oranges? Or how, I guess, tell me about how you're kind of comparing or seeing yourselves related to pharmaceutical process. I think one of the major differences is we, a lot of these industries specialize in uh, certain areas. So you'll have an environmental testing lab, and that's all inorganic testing, or a chemical testing lab that does the chemical organic testing, or a biological testing lab that does the biological. We have to do everything all at once on the same product within the same lab. And uh, that's more unusual. So it's, you know, some hardcore quality control safety testing for these products. And do you see, uh, I mean, if you kind of look out at the future of the cannabis industry in terms of testing, will it bifurcate like that? Or do you see that kind of playing out? Or do you see this as, you know, cannabis is just because of the way the industry works, the way the procedures works, the kind of operational supply chain, it's always going to be an integrated testing facility. Well, I mean, some states, including Michigan, I mean, you can, for example, if we didn't have a ICPMS where we do our metals testing, we could just outsource that aspect of the testing to another lab. And uh, plenty of labs have outsourced that to us. And if we developed a great relationship with lab that we trust, we could, if one of our instruments went down, we could do that for a while. And Or if a new lab came up and they decided they didn't want the headache of one aspect of testing, they could just do away with that altogether. I know in Oregon, I think uh, a separate license altogether is for field sampling. Whereas in Michigan, you get your license for being a lab and that includes sampling. But so in Oregon, uh, you can have a lab a separate lab do the sampling for you and then bring it to your lab, uh, which seems a little unusual, but that's how they do it. 
So, but here in Michigan, you know, as, as the market grows, I could see a lab just outsource all certain types of testing to one lab and just choose uh, how they kind of plan out their business. But for us, it's been working thus far. We've hired really great people for their specific departments. You know, we have a microbiological department head and our mass spec department heads and uh, people who are great at what they do. But, uh, and that's, that served us really well. Yeah. So I'm curious if, if I give you a magic wand and you could change, you know, one or two things about the way the industry works right now, you know, whether it's uh, kind of on the business side or the regulatory side, you know, what are things that you would love to just magically change and how would you change them? More standardization of the testing. And so, or at the very least, having a base standard. So for something like this total yeast and mold testing, yeah. the one that we're again very much against is this QPCR, which is not AOAC approved or USP approved. It's a method that was developed by the company that created the test itself. So until a third party international standard sort of validates the test, like United States Pharmacopeia or AOAC, it just shouldn't be allowed anywhere in the country, just like all the other tests that we do. And having, uh, you know, right now the MRA has set up a monthly meeting with MISOL, which is great. So we can talk through different ideas and hopefully that will bear some fruit. They also have a monthly science meeting or a monthly meeting. And one of the stakeholders includes two representatives of safety compliance facilities. But for us, one thing that we've been pushing for a while is involving the Department of Agriculture, the MDARD, to be kind of like a tiebreaker lab. You know, so when MRA doesn't have to listen to us complaining or griping about certain things, they can say, well, let's send it to MDARD and see what they think. They've been testing pesticides for however many years now, or they've been doing microbiological testing for however long and they can be our tiebreaker. They're already equipped to do this as opposed to MRA, which is more set up for enforcement. Um, So bringing more scientists on board and having more of a collaborative relationship to talk about what really makes sense for the industry and what doesn't. And, you know, and waving a magic wand and helping people understand that potency is in everything. We don't all go out and say, oh, yeah, let's buy Everclear. That's like the most potent <laughs> alcohol you can get. Exactly. You 100% know? alcohol. We get stuff for taste. We get stuff because it agrees with our palate, you know, that sort of thing. Different things just like uh, feel right and don't or yeah. make us sick for some reason. So, yeah, I think just kind of changing the narrative on that will be really important. But uh, dispensaries feel as much pressure in that direction yeah. as uh, as labs do at this point because it is really part of that same cycle. Yeah. So yeah. it would be great to have that magic wand, Bruce. Yeah, <laughs> I'll work on that. A product development effort. Ben, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, more about PSI Labs, what's the best way to get that information? Um, well, our website is psilabs.org. And uh, they can check out some info there, and they can always just email us at info at psilabs.org. Right. I'll make sure that the link and the email are in the show notes. People can click through and get that. Great conversation. I love kind of hearing how things are really playing out in the industry, and certainly the laboratory side is a, a dynamic one right now. So I appreciate the insights and the conversation, and thank you for taking the time today. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, Bruce. 
You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeldt. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.